Hello. If you're hearing my voice right now, then you have stumbled onto the podcast where real stories of professional criminal profilers are told by professional assholes. Welcome to Profiling Pain. What is going on, co-filers? This is the end of the year finale, so thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, And a crazy year it's been for everybody across the board. Um, A few quick announcements for me in my personal life, anyhow. Uh, Today was actually the last day of my beautiful fiance's radiation. Um, Back in March, we found out she had breast cancer. I spoke on that a little bit um, before. Uh, We're not quite out of the woods yet with everything. She's got um, a couple more surgeries and and some uh, appointments to get into, some stuff with her stomach maybe. And we're going to watch that and follow that. But other than that, I mean, she beat it. She's she's breast cancer free. So that's a win. That's a huge win. Um, and although 2020 has been pretty bad for most of us, uh, take the small wins where you can get it. And that's pretty much the long and short of it. Um, outside of her health and the pandemic, we've actually had family-wise a really good year. Things have gone really, really good for us. Um, we've been very fortunate. And I know that that's not the case for a lot of people. So, you know, uh, to those of you who aren't doing quite as well, um, my heart goes out to you. And I hope I'm bringing you some form of entertainment, at least taking you away from the daily drag. Um, So for the season finale, uh, we're going to be getting into a big case. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit different this time. I found a really, really good story on what we're doing. And I'm going to pretty much read that story uh kind of book on tape style um it's really good it's it's god it's it's so tacky it's just uh i don't even know how to explain it just the way that they describe things and they they go way over the top it's it almost seems like hokey i guess you could say um but before all that i'd i'd like to get some thank yous out of the way uh, a huge huge thank you to Age of Radio for all that they've done for me this year, for all that they, they've done for for all all the podcasts that they have on their network. Thank you guys big, 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 big time. And I know that there's some cool things coming uh, next year that are in the works. Um, thank you to Megaphone for um, allowing everything that Age of Radio does to, to go through your platform. Spotify has been huge. Um, iHeartRadio, it's been, it's been a really good year. Um, more content for sure next year now that everything is settled now that the health issues are kind of getting better around the house um which we just got the house back in may so it's been uh it's been cool things have been working out really well um yeah so it's just it's been a very good year i hope you guys had a good holiday um i know it wasn't easy for everybody and for those of you that we're able to string together things for the kids and, and still stay festive, still stay merry. Awesome. Uh, for those of you outside the U.S., I hope you guys are doing great. I hope everything's still going well for you guys, and I hope things continue to get better. Um, vaccines are on the way, so that's a big change. Um, I don't think that we're getting microchipped. I think if you're listening to this on your cell phone, you've already got your, uh, your so-so microchip. Um, but... We will get into conspiracy theory eventually. That might be something to look into, as I mentioned on a couple podcasts ago. Possibly doing a conspiracy theory podcast with uh, the guys from from Rap Sheets. Also, a uh, big thank you to Rap Sheets. Um, 
They've been really cool this entire time. My buddy Levon and, and Jet, they're, they're awesome people. If you have not listened to their podcast yet, you need to check it out. Uh, Rap Sheets, you can find it on Age of Radio. You can find it on Spotify, anywhere that you anywhere that you are listening to this podcast. Um, let's see. I'm in my, my DIY uh, sound booth, so hopefully the sound is sounding pretty good. Um, it's a little bit deader in here. Uh, I know it's a true crime podcast, so that was not an intentional pun. Um, I'm going to get into a local Arizona case that just recently got solved thanks to advances in forensic science and DNA. And then uh, before I start, I would like to say Brian Laughlin, who's a big fan of the show and a good buddy of mine as well. He's the lead singer of Gridlocked. He's the lead singer of A Stubborn Old Bastard. He's got a new group coming up. Um, awesome bands based out of Tucson. He's a really good dude, although he does look like he might eat a baby. But no, he's a really good dude, really good dad. And uh, I have a lot of respect for the guy. So, Brian Laughlin, Happy New Year, motherfucker. This one is for you. You're finally getting what you want. Um, so, I decided to go out with the finale and do, uh, I think everybody needs a little R&R. But as opposed to rest and relaxation, we are doing Richard Ramirez. So, we're going to get into that here shortly. So, let's go ahead and just get started with our local case. Now, Lance Ray. Okay, so 20 years ago. 20 years ago in Phoenix, Arizona, in an alley, there was a, a, a body found. It was an 18-year-old male uh, shot, killed, left there. And uh, there's been this ongoing case. So I got this. Uh, this was done by uh, Jamie Landers with the Arizona Republic. And this was just published maybe 48 hours ago. So this is all very recent. Um, so the Phoenix Police Department, Peoria Police Department, and FBI, the Phoenix Field Office, are asking for the public's help in seeking victims and information about a 20-year-old cold case. Now, the reason they're doing that is because they think that over the span of 20 years, he's got so much other shit going on everywhere else because he's been multiple places. So they're asking if you guys have any information after hearing this case, if anything sounds similar, um, call in. I, I'll give you the number at the end, but you guys call in if you, if you know anybody that might have experienced something similar or if you've seen anything similar. So... So according to a press release from Phoenix Police Spokesperson Sergeant Mercedes Fortune, the case involves an alleged sexual offender and homicide suspect Lance David Ray, okay, 53 years old. He was arrested in October in connection with three separate incidents in, 20, in, in the year 2000 after DNA evidence linked him to the crimes. Now in Peoria, it is alleged that Ray kidnapped a 14-year-old, held him at gunpoint, and sexually assaulted him. In the first of two Phoenix incidents, the charges allege that Ray kidnapped, bound, and sexually assaulted a 17-year-old at gunpoint. The other incident involved an 18-year-old man who was shot and killed after a struggle, Fortune said. Ray was arrested in Bloomington, Indiana, where he was visiting, but was extradited to Phoenix and booked into the Maricopa County Jail. Ray has also lived in the San Francisco, California area in the early 1990s before moving to Portland, Oregon in 1993. Ray resided in Oregon, Washington, and California until 1999, when Ray moved to Phoenix, Arizona from 1999 to 2003. Ray then res uh, resided in California again from 2003 to till 2017, before moving to St. Louis, Missouri in 2017. The investigation is ongoing and is believed that additional victims may exist according to Fortune. If you believe you or someone you know may have information regarding Ray, please email reportray at fbi.gov or call 1-800-CALL-FBI. The interesting part of this case is that a few other articles that I read says that advances in DNA, like, I mean, if you guys remember, uh, we just caught... We, because I was a part of that, right? Um, but 
I believe it was last year or the year before, thanks to, to 23andMe, they caught, I want to say it was the Green River Killer, and then BTK kind of gave himself up uh, last year or the year before with <laughs> with the CD that he sent the police. It just We're going to get into uh, BTK. We're going to get into the Green River Killer. We're going to get into all these things eventually. But next year, at least most of the year, next season, we're going to be covering more cults. Um, this is still half-ass a profiling podcast, even though it seems like with advances in DNA and forensic science, profilers are kind of becoming uh, the old guard, you know. So, and I, that's why we're kind of doing more 70s and 80s cases, because that's when it was strong. That's when, you know, that's when you had to go with your, your hunch. You know, it's when everybody was Batman, per se. So, but anyway... We're going to get right into uh, Richard Mears. I found something really cool in his early life. I was looking everywhere. I mean, I was reading biography after biography after biography. Um, I say biography, but I mean like like internet biography, you know, Wikipedia, shit like that. But I came across this, this good one that I hope this, I mean, I'm not saying I hope this is all true, but it's a lot of his early life. Now, this is going to be a long episode. I'm forewarning you now. It's going to be a long episode. It's going to be a long-winded episode. I'm going to be talking a lot, but it's, it's Richard Ramirez. If you don't know this guy, if you've never heard of him before now, he is, without a doubt, a piece of shit. I mean, a walking, talking piece of shit. I think he was born a piece of shit. He died a piece of shit. He's a piece of shit. Um, there's no nice thing about this motherfucker, except his hair. I hear his hair is really good. Um, but this dude has been, I mean, everywhere. He's been on the Maury show. I'm fucking Maury Povich. Like, people, he's been a household name in America for a really long time. And I'll give you two guesses on where this case takes place. Fucking California, right? Every serial killer we've covered so far has been California. So, uh, that's, I mean... That's where it's at. So here we go. All right. Richard Ramirez is born February 29, 1960 to Julian and Mercedes Ramirez, two hardworking Mexican-American immigrants. He was their fifth and last child with three brothers and a sister who preceded him. Initially, the family settled in El Paso, where Julian had a job laying track for the Santa Fe Railroad. Mercedes had a job at the Tony Lama boot factory where she mixed chemicals and pigments for the boot leather. Mercedes was carrying Richard while she worked at the boot factory, but had to quit in her fifth month of pregnancy. The fumes from the pigments and poor ventilation made her weak, lightheaded, and nauseous. Well, it's real quick, speaking of which, do you guys remember a few years ago there was a class action lawsuit against Motorola for fab workers because they were saying that it could be doing something to, uh, to, to their babies, like in, in utero? Um, I wonder whatever came of that. I work, I, I work at a large semiconductor plant and... Just curious if, to, if there's, like, something I should know. <laughs> anyway, uh, while Richard was not planned, he was adored as the baby of the family. His older sister, Ruth, who frequently took care of him, was devoted to him. Juliana Mercedes had very high hopes for their children and constantly sacrificed to provide a good home for them, as good parents do. Uh, their oldest son, Joseph, had been plagued from childhood by poor health and serious orthopedic problems that were believed to have resulted from his parents' exposure to nuclear fallout and radioactivity from New Mexico. With their limited resources, they paid for 15 operations to help Joseph try to lead a normal life. Two other boys, Reuben and Robert, had learning disabilities and behavioral problems in school. It looked as though Richard the baby might escape some of the difficulties his older brothers had experienced. Richard continued 
to be Ruth's personal doll for hours. She'd play house with him like he was her child, talking to him softly in both English and Spanish. Richard was a good baby, didn't cry much, and ate and slept well. He was particularly good-looking with a well-formed face and big, round, long-lashed eyes. Richard loved music. Now, life was not easy in the Ramirez family, but they all worked hard to make ends meet. Julian and Mercedes loved their children and provided for them the best of their ability. The boys, who were rebellious-natured and hot-tempered like their father, could have benefited from more supervision, but Julian had to travel to lay track for the railroad and was away from home frequently. Reuben and Robert started to get into trouble with the law. They were sniffing glue, stealing cars, burglarizing homes, and hanging around with the wrong kids. Julian flew into a rage. He was so ashamed that his boys had become so wild. The boys were punished, but it didn't do any good. When Richard was in fifth grade, the family realized that he was epileptic. Sometimes he would have grand mal seizures, and other times he would just sort of drift into space as he experienced petite mal seizures. The doctors told Mercedes that he would grow out of it, and eventually he did. Uh, up to the age of 13, Richard did comparatively well in school with better than average grades. In the seventh grade, things started to go downhill. According to his sister, when Richard was arbitrarily thrown off the football team, his pride was very hurt. Richard had been very proud of being a good quarterback and felt it was very unfair of the coach to drop from him or drop him from the team because he had an occasional blackout from the epilepsy. Shortly afterwards, when he was 12, Richard found a new mentor, one that was heavily influenced in his behavior. Real quick, my 12-year-old little brother wants to start playing football, and I'm trying to convince his mom and my wife that, you know, they're doing everything that they can to protect these kids' heads these days. But if my kid even suffered mild epilepsy as a child, he would not be on the fucking football team. Soccer, I mean, I'd even be nervous about baseball. You know, you catch one, one drifting pitch and you're done. Uh, tennis, there we go. Tennis is where it's at. Maybe golf. Maybe swim team. But then if you have a seizure while you're swimming, you probably fucking drown. So, man, chess club. That's where it's chess club and glee club. So <laughs> Richard's cousin Mike had been a Green Beret in Vietnam and had returned from two tours of duty with four medals on his chest. He also brought him a Polaroid odyssey of rape, torture, and mutilation that made a huge impression on young Richard. Uh, this highly successful killer and sadist took Richard under his wing and taught him how to kill and fight. Mike's wife, Jessie, was alarmed at what Mike had become during the war. She didn't need a husband who did nothing but brag about his wartime brutalities and sexual conquests, smoke pot, and hang around with Richard. Disagreements between the two became more and more heated, and one day, in front of Richard, Mike shot his wife in the face. Mike went to trial for the murder, but pled temporary insanity. With his impressive war record, Mike was dealt with leniently, dealt with leniently and was committed to a mental hospital. Mike's influence on Richard was just there. His interest in school had vanished, and all the 13-year-old boy cared about was getting high on pot. He went to Los Angeles to live for the summer with his brother Ruben, who has a heroin addict and who was a heroin addict and a burglar. There was only one objective now, stealing money to get high. When he went back to El Paso, the clashes with his father became more prevalent. Julian was heartbroken to see his youngest son going down the wrong path. Richard saw his father as a tyrant. Both of them, like all the Ramirez men, had terrible explosive tempers. Eventually, he moved in with his sister Ruth and her husband Roberto. The problem with Roberto was that he was also sexed, oversexed, I guess. Uh, he liked to 
take Richard out and would entertain themselves at night by going to selected homes in the neighborhood and peeping in the windows at unsuspecting women as they were undressing. Richard had always been somewhat hyperactive and required very little rest. My brother never slept, Ruth said. He was up all night, all the time. He was one of those people who functioned with only a few hours of sleep. During this period of his life, Richard started taking LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs. At the same time, he started imagining that he was becoming one with Satan. Now this, I believe, I should have done a little bit more research right here, but I believe this is actually at the beginning of the Satanic Panic, which we're going to get into next year's, or next season as well. Um, there's a few cool stories uh, like, um, man, there's just a lot of them, and a lot of it has to do with a lot of the cults. And then you got the West Memphis Three. That's a really good story we're going to get into. I'm not a huge fan of Pearl Jam, but what what Eddie Vedder did to help these these kids is insane. And we'll we'll get into that. I mean, if you want to jump ahead and look up this look up uh, the West Memphis Three yourself, I mean, it's a really good story. It's a sad story. A lot of it's fucked up, but it's it, there is a small victory in the end. Anyway, so he saw himself as a disciple of Satan. Now, while he was in high school, he got a job with a hotel and had access to a master key. He began breaking into the rooms while the guests were sleeping so that he could steal their valuables. He was careful enough so that no one connected the occasional thefts with his access to the passkey. He became obsessed with, this beautiful, or with the beautiful women in the hotel. Often, he would sneak into the room and hide behind the heavy curtains so that he could watch them undress. He fantasized about sex with these women until his fantasies erupted into an assault. He went into the woman's room, surprised her from behind, tied her up and proceeded to rape her when her husband came into the room and knocked Richard to the ground, beating the fucking shit out of him, and then uh, turned him over to the police. Now, Richard's parents were in denial. Also, uh, they didn't press any charges, maybe because of, it's it's weird, but sometimes charges don't get pressed against uh, these assailants because of, of the shame, I suppose, or the embarrassment that this could happen to them. Um, that's, that's why there's a lot of cases of rape that don't come to light till later. That's why the hashtag MeToo movement was so important. Like, I, I've, I've talked a lot of trash about a lot of the stuff that came out of it, but there was a lot of good that came out of it. Um, people who actually did wrong getting caught is what that whole thing was about, and that's, that's perfect. That's how that shit should have went down. Uh, there was no way that uh, their baby Richard could have assaulted that woman. Richard... Uh, convinced his family that the woman had lured him, lured him in to have sex, and her husband simply came back unexpectedly. Richard was only 15, and the judge was lenient. He got away without any probation. Even his parents believed his story. Cousin Mike got out of the mental hospital at the end of 1977 and started hanging around Richard again. By that time, Richard had become a very effective burglar and thief. From Mike, he learned survival tactics and how to be tough. Aside from his cousin, he saw himself as a loner in a hostile, unfair world. When Richard turned 18 in 1978, he left his home in El Paso and headed for Los Angeles. His only interests were drugs, sexual fantasies, and the heavy metal music, which he listened to continuously. Philip Carlo describes the dangerous young man that he had become. He was drawn to musical groups whose rhythms were hard-driving and whose lyrics had something to do with his innermost thoughts on religion and sex. He no longer believed in the Catholic Church. Intense, sadistic sexual images filled Richard's head. For such thoughts, Jesus Christ, he knew, would scorn him and make sure he went to hell and stayed there forever. But unlike Jesus, Satan would not scorn him, but embrace him and give him solace, protection, and understanding. Once in Los Angeles, Richard initially stayed with his brother Reuben until the two of them had a falling out over Reuben's wife. Richard became a cocaine addict and supported himself by burglary, 
When he was stealing to support his habit, he sat around, fantasized about sadistic sexual relationships. He had no normal relationships with women. And the only sex he had was with prostitutes. Eventually, Richard started substituting PCP for angel dust for cocaine. It did nothing but deepen his aggressive and psychotic episodes. One day, he vented his aggression on another addict. He tied her up, ripped her off her clothes, and raped her several times, thrilled by his power over her. It was a profound moment in his fantasy life, and he hungered for more. At this time, Richard started reading about Anton Levy, the founder of the Church of Satan in San Francisco. He felt compelled to join their rituals, but eventually shunned the organized cult and preferred to be what he deemed as lone practitioner. This belief in Satan was not just a whimsy, but a deep-seated belief in the power of Lucifer to protect and empower his disciples. He tried to explain it to his sister when she visited him in L.A. and was alarmed at the changes in him. Why Satan, Richie? She wanted to know. Because Satan represents what I feel. I'm not like other people. I'm different. I've got a trade. I'm a thief. Ruth, and a good one. I'm not going to any jail. I'm protected. And that is where the next part of Richard Ramirez kicks off. So fucking crazy childhood, right? So I didn't see anything in there about harming of animals. I didn't see anything in there about starting fires. It sounds like he was on the straight and narrow until he found that one bad example. Um, especially at that age. We've talked on multiple episodes about uh, the ages between 10, 13, 10, and 15 when you're the most susceptible to just what's going on that's that's when your hormones are are raging that's when your psyche's you know in a different type of mode you're just you're you're so malleable at that point you know impressionable and to see shit like he did i mean not even just the images and the polaroids and all i mean you know kids these days are so fucking desensitized but but to see those actual real Polaroids, if that even fucking happened. I mean, most of this came from Richard Ramirez's mouth, so, I mean, who knows how fucking true that shit is. Um, but there are some proof to uh, to his cousin Mike. Um, but then to watch Mike shoot his wife in the face in front of you when you're 12 fucking years old, like it's nothing. To actually see an example of how little life can fucking matter to somebody. That is insane. And that is just the tip of the iceberg for this story so we're gonna get into some crazy shit now so i hope you guys are ready uh we're cranking this one to 11 it's gonna be fucking man it's gonna be heavy so night stalker richard ramirez from the bowels of hell by joseph Geringer. uh the crescendo of terror so here we go this is me pretty much verbatim reading what he wrote this is this is the one that i told you is a little over the top but here we go so late in the 20th century, hell glutted on humanity. Its first bloodletting of that season of the devil occurred on the warm evening of June 28, 1984, when an earthbound Lucifer found his way into the small Glassell Park apartment of 79-year-old Jenny Vincow. Throughout the Los Angeles area, a damp humidity had oppressed the air that day, and when the evening came and the temperature slightly cooled, Jenny left her window open to invite what little breeze there might be into her flat. Like a fallen leaf decayed and tossed from its source, a fallen angel, dark, angry, and also decaying, blew across the sill of that open window. When the demon departed through, the, through that same window, he left behind Jenny Vinkow, raped, beaten, and nearly decapitated. Her body was found by her son, who lived above her ground floor apartment just south of Forest Lawn Park, 
reports the Los Angeles Times. Her throat had been slashed and she had been stabbed repeatedly. The police were baffled, but in the months to come, they were to encounter a madman whose lust for killing and depravity equaled, if not surpassed, that of Jack the Ripper or more contemporary, the Hillside Stranglers. See, they're popping up in our stories again. Soon to be named the Night Stalker by the press, this madman before, according to true crime author Richard L. Lindecker, the horror in his soul of a Stephen King or a Clive Barker fright novel, and more of Freddy Krueger for real. Less than a year later, the monster reappeared. This time, he waited in the shadows of an upscale condominium outside, outside L.A. The date was March 17, 1985, time 11.30 p.m., when pretty-faced Maria Hernandez pulled her auto into the security garage, unaware the monster was watching her from behind a pillar. When she alighted from her car, the killer stepped from the darkness, gun upraised, and despite her pleadings, he, he pulled the trigger. She stumbled, and the killer, thinking she was dead, stepped over to her to enter the side door of the condo. But Maria had been very lucky, very lucky, for the bullet had deflected off the car keys she held in her hand, causing a hand wound, but nothing more. Inside the building, however, Maria's roommate was less fortunate, for when Maria finally made her way to the safety of her place, breathless, she discovered that her friend, Del Okazaki, had also encountered the killer, and this time, his bullet had found its mark. 33-year-old Okazaki lay in a pool of her own blood, her skull smashed by a missile fired at extremely close range. The demon vanished just as quickly as he had appeared. The police were stumped. All they knew of him was that what Hernandez had, was able to tell them. He was tall, gaunt, dark, maybe Hispanic. This time, the killer didn't wait nearly a year to murder again. He struck within the hour. His next victim, that same evening, was petite Taiwanese-born Sai Lian Yu, who, driving her yellow Chevrolet down North Al Alhambra Avenue and nearby Monterey Park, withered when someone with the eyes of a madman forced his way into her car and shot her. He had thrown his own car into idle, simply entered hers, pushed her into the pavement, called her a bitch, then blew her into eternity at point-blank range. Fast, neat, clean. Then dematerialized into the darkness from whence he came. The police were beginning to realize they might have a problem on their hands, but they remained stumped. Eyewitnesses who thought they had seen the killer described him as tall, gaunt, dark, maybe Hispanic. Ten days later, this elusive phantom whose physical description could fit any one of thousands of males in the greater Los Angeles area required more blood. This time, shooting his prey didn't quite satisfy the urge. The demon must have been hungry. He must have been fanatic, frantic. For when he entered the home of the sleeping Zazar couple, he produced a bloodbath. The couple's bodies were discovered by their son the following morning. Vincent Zazara had been shot in the head as he dozed on the sofa. He had died quickly, unlike his wife, who suffered the percussion of the killer's frenzy. On her face, he had carved the embodiment of his hate, molding her physicality into something representative of how the, he viewed mankind, as something made to splice and cut and gouge, to bend, to twist, to reshape, to suit his own wantonness. Clifford L. Lindiger, in his well-researched Night Stalker, describes what the police found at the crime scene. They, being the police, would never forget the sight of Maxine Zazara's mutilated face. Her eyes were gouged out, and the empty sockets were ringed with the blackened gobs of blood and tissue. The killer had plunged a knife through her left breast, leaving a large, ragged T-shaped wound. There were other cruel injuries to her neck, face, abdomen, and around the pubic area. She had been butchered. Investigators found footprints, visible signs of a tennis shoe, in the service area 
and in the fl flower bed, indicating his means of entry into the Zazara home. There were no witnesses this time around, but a modest apparandi was becoming loosely apparent. Nevertheless, stumped, the law determined to put an end to this savage that had crawled up from the mud up and within their midst. That, they believed, the latest crime to have been committed by the same creature that had said, or slain Vinkau, Ozazaki, Okazaki, sorry, and you was, at this point, not much more than a hunch. But, if they were correct, the madman was becoming bolder and more just fucking rage-filled. An inner lust seemed to be growing and now fed and apparently well-fed. Who knows what would come next? Scouring the neighborhoods where he had already struck, blue uniforms questioned strangers, stopped midnight strollers, clambered for witnesses, but there proved little to go on. Deep inside, the police feared he, fucking it, whatever this monster was, would strike again. Tension of the wait was short. Elderly Harold and Jean Wu did not hear their intruder slipping into their residence through a window at pre-dawn, May 14th, the first intimation mrs wu had of his presence was the loud bang that stirred her awake she woke up to find the figure smoking gun in hand standing over her beside her husband harold groaned shot in the head then the killer's huge fists unloosened on the woman he pummeled her slapped her kicked her and demanded that she turn over loose all their cash to him blinding her binding her hands together behind her with thumb screws he tossed her across her bed over her dying spouse then rampaged through the home's drawers and cabinets for money. Terrified, lying on her mattress, Jean Wu could hear three things. Harold's furtive gasp for life, furniture being invaded, and the madman's curses as he found nothing of great value. Having rampaged through their belongings, the tall, thin, dark man returned to the Wu's bedroom. And as she lay across, the fading husband violently raped the 63-year-old woman. Satisfied, he zippered up, grinning, then left another trophy his. Mrs. Wu, after recovering from shock, told police her attacker was tall, gaunt, dark, and Hispanic. The symphony of terror played on. Its, nest, its next discordant sorry, <laughs> uh, notes sounded in the dark hours before May 30th at the home of attractive 41-year-old Ruth Wilson. The woman awoke in her bed to the blinding beam of flashlight and the distinct silhouette of a pistol barrel across her gaze. Behind the illumination of gruff voice demanded, where's your money? Now, before she could muster words, the intruder yanked her by the sleeve off of, off of her negligee, of her negligee, off her bed, and led her to her 12-year-old son's room down the hall. Using the frightened boy as bait, he insisted that she produce something of value. She told him where an expensive piece of jewelry was hidden. He seemed satisfied as he studied the diamond necklace in his hands, and Wilson figured he would just abscond without harming her or her boy. Unfortunately, she was wrong. Locking her son in a closet, he took his pent-up emotions out on the woman in the pink negligee who stood before him. Shoving her back into her own bedroom, he tore the gown off her, and despite her, prote protest, uh, despite, despite her protesting, he had his way with her. First, he bound her hands behind her with a pair of pantyhose, then fell upon her. As he raped and sodomized her, his foul breath and body odor overcame and sickened her, adding insult to the humiliation. Miraculously so, he left her alive. He was gone, all but in her night terrors that would haunt her over and over and over for months to come. Now, when the police later interviewed her, she gave her description of the devil. He was tall, gaunt, dark, and definitely Hispanic. Uh, my only question is, was everybody actually using the term gaunt? Um, 
I know it's kind of a, a weird side note, but Gaunt just, I mean, maybe people were more well-spoken in the 80s, but how often do you use the word fucking Gaunt? You just say skinny, right? Skinny, maybe anorexic. Anyway, uh, stalking with Satan. Now, police composites had been produced of the killer, compiled from descriptions from those who lived to tell their attack and from witnesses who had seen the shooting of Sileon Yu on Alhambra Avenue. With minor variations, the suspect was of Hispanic descent, about 25 to 30 years old. He wore long, unkept black hair that hung in greasy strands over a high forehead and was straggled down across a skeletally thin, pock-marked face. Cheekbones were sunk in, lips thick, chin square. According to Ruth Wilson, his teeth were jagged and rotten. The description wasn't a pretty one, and it fit the face of the monster he was. Each testimony had him dressed in all black. Squads continued to roll throughout the city and accompanying suburbs. Policemen watched steadfastly night and day for anyone even closely fitting that description, but didn't find their man. And in the meantime, his crimes continued without a sign of let-up, his ferocity building. The nature of the next attack, which occurred on June 1st, the day after the assault on Wilson, added another and alarmingly new perspective to the suspect. He suddenly took on the role of a Satanist and his deeds as sacrificial rituals to the Lord Master of Evil. It would be his most aggressive and horrific action to date. Retired school teacher Malvia Keller and, in, and her invalid sister Blanche Wolf, 83 and 79 years old, respectively, were viciously beaten in their small house in suburban Monor Monrovia off one of the central state freeways. When found by their gardener the following morning, both elderly women had been beaten across the head with a hammer. Wolf lay near the point of death, oozing blood from a head wound. She had been raped. Keller, who had succumbed, had her legs and arms bound and had been crushed by a heavy table which the killer had turned over across her ribs. Police found a pentagon and encircle five-pointed star, if you don't know what the fuck a pentagram is. I said pentagon, sorry. Pentagram, uh, which is often linked to satanic worship, drawn in lipstick on Malvia Keller's thigh. Um, another pentagram had been crudely scrawled in lipstick on the bedroom wall where Blanche Wolf lay in a comatose state. The tip of the pentagram was inverted, pointing down an indication of evil, of Satan. This indication of evil worship was no surprise to Los Angeles County Sheriff Sherman Block, who had for some time suspected that the crimes to be of that origin. A black baseball-style cap bearing the emblem of the hard rock group ACDC found at the scene of Del Okazaki's murder had given him that impression. Now, I mean, I get highway to hell album all that other stuff and it's so crazy to think back to to that music i mean we just covered led zeppelin on the last episode but like to hear like acdc or fucking judas priest and all stuff be considered satanic with given the shit that we listen to today i mean look at slipknot slipknot you know even when disturbed did their own little symbol for the believe album and i don't know i i mean whatever as as a musician i just i'm kind of like ah come on you're, that's that's a fucking reach it's a band anyway that music group was known for having produced some lyrics with cultist overtones. Uh, authorities focused on ACDC's 1979 Highway to Hell album and its six-minute Night Prowler cut, which says in part, What's that noise outside your window? What's the shadow on the blind? As you lay there naked like a baby, or as a body in a tomb, suspended animation as I slip into your room. Block had seen enough murder in his years as a police officer to recognize the differences between homicides of various degrees, drug-related, love triangle, cultists, and so on. 
So this string of killings was the most bizarre in his years of law enforcement experience. Uh, so dispiritedly, all he and his men had to go on at this stage of the game was a generic description of the assailant and the flimsy roots of motive. The devil's own remained elusive, and that's all that mattered. Unfortunately, it had now become apparent that like a vampire of folklore, the demon had grown and was growing stronger by the moment, more degenerate with every sip of blood. Um, so that is this dude's very eloquent way of saying he's not getting caught. So now he's he's feeling fucking invincible. And that's just that's how it works with these guys. But as we know, every time they start to get to that point and then they get into their berserker phase, which this guy was like one giant berserker phase. But when they get into their just rapid fucking hit phase is when they usually get caught up. And the difference is, is that it's going to be a while before Richard Ramirez gets caught because Richie had no specific targets, not like Ted Bundy, who had a very, very specific type of person he went for, not like the Hillside Stranglers, who had a, a, kind of a specific type of people that they went for. This guy was just all over the fucking place. It's like whichever way the wind carried him. A lot like Richard Chase. Richard Chase just, boom, whatever was there. you know. But the thing about Richard Chase is that it had to be an unlocked door. That's why he was called the Vampire of Sacramento. He said that he felt unwelcome if he couldn't just easily walk in. So over the next six weeks, the Los Angeles area would endure a series of killings so brutal that the city was thrown into a panic that took on the appearance of a cataclysm. Many sleepless nights were had by citizens, especially by women who lived alone. No lock was sufficient in the minds of the frightened public. No door bolt thick enough. No window latch secure enough. Because the killer's victims ranged all ages, no one, man or woman, child or spinster, felt safe. Some of his victims were of Oriental culture, others were Caucasian, and the city wondered who the hell was next. Some writers claimed that the killer, who by all eyewitnesses' testimony was believed to be Hispanic, had not picked on his own. Yet they forgot Maria Hernandez, whose key ring had saved her life on a mid-March morning. The killer had not exhibited a rapid or a rabid preference for any particular culture, age group, sex, or even uh, geographic area. His killings spanned a 40-mile range uh, encircling the greater L.A. area. He was, as Lindiger observed, an equal opportunity killer. Uh, his modus operandi, or the profile that they were creating on him, remained consistent and his motives inexplicable. His break-ins, while well-orchestrated, even ritualistic, had at the same time earmarks of sexual spontaneity as if a single spark of impure thought caused havoc so hot in his brain that they eased, or that to ease to the torture, he needed to torture others. Uh, between June 1st, immediately following the Monrovia affair, and mid-August of 1985, nine more bloody rampages were attributed to what the newspapers were now calling for a lack of better name, the Valley Intruder. Uh, the toll of his victims included Patty Higgins, 32 years old, Arcadia area, June 27th, killed in her home, her throat slashed. Mary Lewis Cannon, 75 years old, Arcadia, July 2nd, found in her home, beaten, throat slashed. Uh, DJ Palmer, 16 years old, Arcadia, July 5th, beaten at home with a tire iron, survived. Joyce Lucille Nelson, 61 years old, Monterey Park, July 7th, bludgeoned to death and mutilated in her house. Linda Fortuna, 63 years old, Monterey Park, also July 7th, survived rape and sodomy attempts when attacker could not get an erection. He robbed her home and fortunately left her alive. Maxon and Layla 
needing. Husband and wife, 66 and 64 years old, respectively. Glendale area, July 20th, shot in their beds while they slept, mutilated after death. Maxon's head was nearly decapitated. Asawaiham family, Sun, uh, Sun Valley, also July 20th. Husband, uh, Chitat, 32 years old, shot in bed, point-blank range. His 29-year-old wife, Sakima, dragged from her bed, beaten, uh, twice raped, and made to perform oral sex. While bound, Sakima was forced to listen as killer slapped her 80-year-old son or 8-year-old son in his bed afterwards intruder departed with family uh, family cash Christopher and Virginia Peterson husband and wife 38 and 27 years old respectively Northridge area August 5th both shot in the head while they were in bed both somehow survived despite a bullet that penetrated a section of Christopher's brain and another that blew away Virginia's face Ahmed and Sue Kiazia husband and wife 35 and 28 years uh, Diamond Bar, August 8th. Ahmed shot in the temple and killed in the couple's bed. Wife Sue handcuffed, slapped, punched, raped, and forced perform. Uh, fellatio on intruder. She survived. Horrified colonists had been referring to the mystery murderer in a number of ways. Nicknames abounded, all of them colorful. The Valley Intruder, the Walk-In Killer, enjoying the longest run. But it was not until the Los Angeles Herald Examiner started calling him the Night Stalker that the city had found his true idiom. The moniker, simple and sharp, like a knife, stabbed the bullseye. It frightened and it numbed, and the name stuck like a lump in the throat. It penetrated like a shiv in the guts of those who heard it, especially those who lived in the communities where the stalker stalked. Los Angeles was terrified. Now keep in mind, 40-mile area. I mean, no one is safe, no age group, no nothing. The, the entire city is just freaked the fuck out and this is coming off of the hills of like i said richard chase and sacramento this is coming off you had fucking the hillside stranglers in glendale um i'm sure there's more that i haven't covered that are on this list i believe there was actually the freeway killer down the um i want to say the i-4 i mean just craziness and then coming up, you know, you've got Charles Manson. There's, I mean, Charles Manson was a little bit before this, I believe. But you, I mean, just cults. There's cults. There's murderers. There's rapists. There's fucking I, it, L.A. Just California in general was just a fucking hotbed for mayhem from the fucking '60s all the way through the '80s. I mean, and then you get into the L.A. riots. And I mean, just there was so much just volatility in that fucking area for so long. Anyway. So now we're getting into police pressure. And it doesn't talk about Officer Salerno enough in this, and I know that we mentioned him in the Hillside Stranglers case, but he is a bad motherfucker. I think one day I might just do a whole episode just based on him. Uh, we're going to get into him a little bit in, in, this, in the next part of this uh, coming up. It's, it's going to talk about Frank Salerno. But he fucking, man, he's... he's so we talked about during the Richard Chase case about how... Um, Every different precinct wants to get the collar, aka they want to get the they want to they want to get the arrest. They want credit for the arrest, um, even to the point where like FBI and local police departments don't work together. They don't talk. They don't met. You know what I mean? Um, Salerno had no problem going from precinct to precinct to precinct to precinct. He he fucking he is one of the big reasons why the Hillside Strangers got caught because he worked with uh, some of the people from Seattle, Washington, and all that other shit, and that's how they caught fucking Kenneth Bianchi. Like Salerno is a bad motherfucker. Him, Ray Biondi, I mean, guys like that, I don't think get enough 
praise, not 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 enough. You know, I'm I'm looking for shit for Salerno forever, and I'm finding little interviews here and there. You know, and and this man was raising his daughter during all this shit, and he's just thinking about what you know, fucking. He he would not rest. He wanted, he didn't want this to happen to anybody, or anybody else's little girl, fucking ever. Like he was, holy shit. Frank Salerno is a bad motherfucker. He he is a bad motherfucker. So, in Los Angeles County, both the county and municipal police were anything but idle. They recognized and admitted to the enormity of the problem they had as long as the Night Stalker was free to roam. Now, no one was safe, but how, they wondered. Leash a mad dog that seems to be invisible. Uh, more than any other lawman, Detective Sergeant Frank motherfucking Badass Salerno of the, of the County Department's Homicide Squad was the man most proposed to answering that riddle. He knew how tricky the mind of a homicidal maniac could be to box and to tag, having played a large role in tracking down L.A.'s hillside stranglers a decade earlier. He was, for that matter, the first to sense that the Valley had another serial killer on the loose. In June of 1985, not long after the killings began, Salerno took it upon himself to list similarities in the up-to-then six murders in suburban Los Angeles. Certain things matched, collected fingerprints, recovered cartridge shells, 22 caliber, and even a distinct method of breaking an entry, all the same. Imprints of the same design tennis shoe, identified as Reebok High Tops size 11. Uh, they all told a startling tale, but more revealing still, the description of the killer himself was nearly identical in each case where a living person had been left to talk. Tall, gaunt, dark, Hispanic, in his late 20s, early 30s, downright ugly. And now signs of devil worship were surfacing in many of the killings. Apart from the pentagrams discovered at Ma uh, Malvia Keller's house, the murder had, according to survivors such as Ruth Wilson, demanded that they mouth such phases, phrases such as, I vow to Satan, or I love Satan, or he would kill them. Nor had Salerno forgotten the baseball cap with the rock group ACDC's emblem found after the Okazaki murder. He recalled that one of the band's songs hinted at sat Satanism. He took this evidence to his superior, Captain Robert Grimm, who was impressed. From Grimm, Salerno sought and gained permission to check with the L.A. City forces to compare notes. Bad motherfucker. Perhaps, he thought, they had been encountering like cases, unsolved, which might compare it to the elusive killer's track record. Grimm recognized the wisdom in Salerno's suggestion to check with LAPD, which, why it took this fucking long, I don't know. I mean, but sometimes you just need a, a, a badass like Salerno to get it straight. Uh... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No one wanted a situation similar to the Hillside Strangler case. When both the LAPD and the Los Angeles Sheriff's deputies worked their investigations alone and independent of each other. The result for the police agencies had been missed opportunities, confusion, and embarrassment. So Salerno and Grimm envisioned a task force comprised of the top police investigators throughout the county and the city of Los Angeles. After discussion with the LAPD, the latter decided that it would invest in its own separate task force, but promised to work around the clock and closely with Salerno, who had already been given a squad of detectives dedicated to finding the Night Stalker. While separate entities, both investigative teams operated 
as committed as one, feeding information back and forth and partnering in any activities to maintain a single direction. Salerno, in the meantime, conferred with two of his top men who had directed the investigative efforts in two of the stalker's previous crimes. They proved invaluable in formatting the investigative team and in keeping his work strategic. Detective Gil Carrillo had been one of the first plainclothesmen introduced to the Night Stalker's handiwork when he was assigned to the Okazaki shooting. Besides being familiar with the history of this latest serial killer, Salerno called on Carrillo's uh, intrinsic knowledge of computers, a technical expertise Salerno lacked to create a database for incoming and outgoing information. Salerno for fucking president 2024, man. He, like, he found people that knew shit that he didn't and brought them in, leaving no stone unturned. He is just... Man, I am fanboying right now. Anyway, <laughs> so on the other hand, Detective Russell Olaf uh, helped Salerno determine the kind of psychopath that they were dealing with. His study of the Zazara butchery showed that the mutilations ravaged on Mrs. Zazara were done after she was already dead. The gouging out of the eyes, the eyes that the killer evidently took with him, was enacted as a sort of satanic cult act. But while his formidable adversaries were seeding the roots of war against him, the Night Stalker managed to slip by them in the cover of darkness to commit the murders of Higgins, Cannon, Nelson, Needing, and Asawam. The series of tragedies necessitated that, by early August, the task force more directly include the suburban law enforcement agencies around Los Angeles where the devil continued to hunt. With a manpower of 200 investigators. It was the largest operation of its kind ever created. Besides the full-time force, Salerno called in subject experts from the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Criminal Profiling Unit who presented their views of known types of serial killers, then narrowed the types to which the Night Stalker came closest. Not leaving a stone unturned, the task force even consulted personalities with knowledge on devil worship and cultist torture rituals. Investigators following the Satan cult theory fell on places where such groups assembled. They questioned followers of these leagues about their membership, hoping that they might uncover the identity of the killer in their company. While they could not uncover a suspect, they did find something very interesting on the floor of an East Los Angeles cult hall. They found a shoe print that matched the imprint of the Reebok tennis shoes, size 11, located at many of the murder scenes. Slurna wanted the killer to feel the heat to panic and to blunder into the open through his own hysteria. The detective had seen it happen many times. Criminals, feeling the pressure, leap before looking and announce their guilt hands up by doing something stupid. To meet this end, he made sure that the task force started feeding the media pieces of evidence they uncovered, large and small, even unfounded information to give the killer the impression they were closing in. This is the same shit, the same tactic that James A. Brussel used to help find uh, George Metesky, the Mad Bomber. If you go back to the first two episodes, which I know the audio is shit, but the information is fucking great, especially about James A. Brussel. This is the same tactic that they did every fucking letter that they found. Put it out there, put it out there, put it out there, put it out there. And it's it's true. All these cases that I read about, a lot of them that I don't do podcasts on, I just fucking read because apparently I like to read gruesome shit. But... uh they do this they just they boom it's like putting their feet to the fucking fire and eventually they do get reckless and they make a mistake so simultaneous to the big squeeze in august the task force announced its uh, formation at a press conference keynoted by representatives from the county sheriff's office at the conference which was heavily attended by an anxious press the speakers officially confirmed the existence of a dangerous serial killer wandering at will in the los angeles valley we are concerned there is an individual who is responsible for more than one murder, multiple murders, admitted Robert A. Edmonds, Los Angeles County Assistant Sheriff. County Sheriff Sherman, 
uh, assured the public, sorry, Sherman Block, full name, assured the public, however, that all surrounding police agencies were combing the streets to end the spree. Authorities asked for the public to keep calm, to keep doors locked, and to report any suspicious activities or persons in their neighborhoods as soon as they manifested. The press conference kicked off a campaign to make the public more aware and to make it more active in the apprehension of the Night Stalker, which the ending's pretty fucking cool. Salerno's task force distributed flyers, leaflets, and wanted posters bearing the composite sketch of the killer. Posters soon hung in every visible passage in every public byway and uh, through fair and market within, uh, within and around all the Los Angeles area. A citizen couldn't take a stroll to the corner store to drive their kids to school without coming face-to-face -face with the large-sketched ugly face of the Night Stalker. And things began to pop. Telephone calls from men and women, some calling anonymously, poured in faceless voices and unsigned letters of concern led police to strange goings-on in their neighborhood or to the oddball neighborhood characters who fit the Night Stalker's description. Not a lead was overlooked. Transients, vagrants, and vagabonds were questioned, as were those oddball neighborhood characters. It was not easy to be a thin, tall, gangly male <laughs> in the 1980s in L.A. at this time. Terror that had gripped the people of Los Angeles had now, prompted by the police, turned to obst ob obstinacy. Uh, the, the populace transformed from a group of frightened individuals into a committee of daring hunters, begging for their chance to catch the nighttime ghoul. If he wanted to prey on them, well, they cried, let him pray, because now they were waiting. The family man and the businessman and the housewife, they had bought guns and loaded them. Or they had as their weapons shovels, pickaxes, or kitchen knives, or any one of the dozens of homemade utensils pointing their way to a night stalker's heart. Suddenly, the night stalker realized that things had changed. He found their lights burning at night, a silhouette in the window. Suddenly, he found apartment buildings with high guards pacing the lobby. Suddenly, he found citizens, committees strolling round about and in and out of the alleys, the parks, the streets. Suddenly, he found their windows nailed shut, part, part, porch lights left on, backyards illuminated by safety beams. Suddenly, he found defiance. The civic forces, too, were out in droves. Patrol cars were everywhere, marked and unmarked vehicles. Townsfolk volunteers had been deputized as well as uh, to drive in the dark, licensed to throw their search beams at anything that moved or crept or crawled, and if it resembled a night stalker, to step on it. The devil, the ghost, the ghoul, the phantom, the stalker. It was time for him to leave Los Angeles. He shrugged. After all, no matter. He would go elsewhere. He could kill anywhere. So as the sun descended over San Francisco on the evening of August 17, 1985, a beat-up brownish-red 1978 Pontiac Grand Prix pulled off Highway 80 and began to cruise the adjacent suburbs that bordered it. Within the next couple of hours, the car found its way into the upper-scale neighborhood of Lake Merst. Uh, uh, it was well after dark, the time of evil. Parking his car in the darkest, in the darkest spot he could find, the Night Stalker emerged, and checking for the 22 caliber handgun in his belt, headed to one particular two-story home where he felt the devil was directing him. Tall, gaunt, dark, ugly, 25-year-old Richard Mares paused. He turned to look back at the Pontiac he had been driving these last few weeks. He ruminated a moment and decided after tonight he'd better play it safe and ditch this auto. It was time to steal another one, perhaps before the sun rose. But first things first, he drew the revolver. So tight, so hard, so metallic in the moonlight, and strolled nonchalantly to the unit gangway beside the home of elderly Chinese couple Mr. and Mrs. Pan. 
Houses like these were so easy to penetrate. Ramirez knew windows low to the ground, removable screens, a snap, a slight push, and he was in. Of course, Satan was guiding his every move. He knew that. Why fret about getting caught? All these homes, all these homes. And yet, not once had the resident heard him entering. The devil silenced their ears while they slept. And he, Richard Ramirez, then took it a step further. He silenced them forever. More blood to feed hell, to keep his furnaces burning. Inside the house, Ramirez looked at his watch. Midnight, a good time to kill. He checked his weapon once more. Yes, cylinder loaded. These homes were all laid out pretty much the same. He knew where the bedrooms were by instinct. Without pause, he walked to where the couple slept, found them snoring, and pulled the trigger. He loved the way their bodies jerked upon impact. His senses tingled, watching them rattle in death, hearing their throats beg for air, watching as their pillows darkened with life's liquid underneath what was left of their skulls. But there was no time to admire his latest artwork. There was much more work to do here before he left. Time now for a little home uh, decorating so that the police would know that the Night Stalker was far, far from trapped. Holy shit. That, oh, man, sorry. I need a palate cleanser real quick. That was, uh, I mean, it almost sounds like Homeboy had a chubby while writing this. I'm just saying. What a way to kick off the new year, right? All right. Moving in. Moving on. So when the Pan's son visited his parents the next morning, he walked into the aftermath of Doomsday. His father was dead in bed, his mother next to him, seriously injured. The walls of the home were etched with lipstick diagrams of devil worship, cursing, and alien messages such as Jack the Knife. Uh, drawers, were ran drawers were ransacked. A side window had been pried open, and dirty footprints bearing a Reebok design trailed hastily from the windowsill across the carpet in and out of the parents' bedroom. Mrs. Alberta Pan survived but remained an invalid. Her husband, Peter, was pronounced dead and general at, at General Hospital. San Francisco police knew immediately that the horror of Los Angeles, the Night Stalker, had come to their city. Certainly the modus operandi before his logo, breaking an entry, the assassination of the male first where a couple was involved, and the cult of signatures left on the scene. Bullets retrieved from the victims when matched with those in the possession of the Los Angeles task force confirmed it. So did the shoe prints. And I like the fact that San Francisco didn't fuck around. They immediately contacted LA, like, look, this is going on. So comparing notes with, with Detective Salerno, San Francisco homicide detective Frank Kowalski also learned that a brown 1978 Pontiac, which had been reported prowling the streets of Lake Merced, Merced, whatever, uh, the night of the pan killing, matched the description of an auto seen in the vicinity of the most recent murders in the L.A. area. Undoubtedly the same car, the same maniac. Authorities began wondering if the same man who perhaps traveled between L.A. and San Francisco might have committed four other recent unsolved homicides in San Francisco. In retrospect, they now seem to have been on February 1st. Police discovered the mutilated bodies of Christina Caldwell, 58, and her sister Mary, 70. They were stabbed dozens of times. Um, a coroner's report said a window of their ransacked flat was left open. Bloody fingerprints, palm prints and shoe prints were left behind, although Detective Kowalski said most of the prints turned out to be those of neighbors. Another slaying being checked is that of um, Masataka Kabayaki, Kobayaki, 45, part owner and chef of Masa's, a fashionable restaurant on Knob Hill. Um, the fourth murder involved Edward F. Wiggins, 29, who was shot June 2nd through the right temple by a late-night intruder. He died two days later. His girlfriend fought off the attacker but was raped. 
After interviewing the girlfriend, Nancy Breen, her description of her tormentor coincided with the image of the Night Stalker. Without delay, law enforcers in the city by the bay disseminated wanted posters and leaflets. The whole department has been mobilized to apprehend the suspect, promised Richard Clapp, police commissioner. Patrols were doubled at night, particularly in Hispanic neighborhoods, where one of the nationally, nationality might easily blend in. Um, according to the Los Angeles Times, investigators quickly learned that a male resembling the Night Stalker had stayed at the Bristol a Transient Hotel at 56 Mason Street during the week of the Pan murder. Manager Alex Melenikov remembered the, the lodger as dressing in all black and reeking of body odor. The stranger had signed out the afternoon of the said crime. Uh, Melnikov said the paper uh, had found an inverted five-pointed star known as a pentagram inscribed on the door of a room adjacent to the one occupied by the border. A similar star was found in the Pan's home. Richard Ramirez had abandoned the Pontiac, and he had abandoned San Francisco in haste. He chuckled, huddled behind the wheel of a stolen 1976 orange Toyota, about why he had to make a quick departure. How that mayor of San Francisco, what's her name? Diane Feinstein, mouthed off to those news station people about the police feeling like they were closing in on the Night Stalker. Then, how that county sheriff had a fit because she had screwed up the whole dragnet. Locos. Crazy people. Now, turning the Toyota's grill off the Golden State Freeway towards the entrance to the community known as Mission Viejo, he determined to show them locos just who is the smartest one. The devil protected him, but they had no one. Tonight, someone would die. Not in San Francisco, as the police suspected, but here in this rich boy community so near to Los Angeles. The date was August 25th, just after midnight. William Carnes and his fiancée, Renata Gunther, dreamed well tonight in their home in uh, Crescenta Drive. Parking his car in the shadows, Ramirez entered their fine stucco home and sought out the bedroom to see who slept there. He smiled when he saw the couple sound asleep. Both looked young in their late 20s, and the beautiful Renata tingled his senses. Beauty for the sacrificial altar, for Lucifer. Out came his revolver, the 22, and he flashed his barrel toward the cranium of the male. Carnes twitched and gagged. Renata awoke to the dark, skinny, grinning Ramirez who had leaned over her, panting, calling her a bitch shaking her and laughing in her face. His breath stank, his teeth. She could see them in the umbrage, were crooked and stained. His eyes blazed. Forcing her from her bed, he threw himself over her and raped her. Snarling in her face, he promised to shoot her unless she swore to Satan. Begging for her life, she did as he asked, but before he released her from his grasp, he thrust her head to where he unzipped his trousers. Having performed, he left her alive. But in pain and nauseated, he had repaired, repaired, yeah, uh, repaired back into the darkness from whence he came. A middle-aged woman named Donna Myers and her friend, Serafin Arredondo, who lived in the El Sobrante district of San Francisco, had come forth in the meantime with a fascinating tale. Myers, who let out her home occasionally as a boarding house, had from time to time rented a room to a man she knew only as Ricky. She told the police he was tall, gaunt, Hispanic, and, in a word, strange. What's more, he closely resembled the police sketch of the Night Stalker that appeared in the Chronicle. 
Ricky was from El Paso, Texas, she explained, and traveled throughout California, mostly between San Francisco and Los Angeles. To her, he often addressed his interest in the black arts. She related that one day during a recent stay, she appeared to come into her TV room when Ricky was viewing a news report about a Night Stalker victim. He seemed greatly interested in the program. Noticing her behind him, Ricky suddenly turned to her from his chair, grinned and with a mouthful of crooked teeth, and whispered, Now wouldn't you be surprised if I turned out to be the stalker? She thought at the time it was just a sick bit of whimsy, until she noticed the, comp the composite in the newspaper shortly thereafter. The memory chilled her. Arredondo, a friend of the Myers family who often visited the woman, displayed some men's jewelry, a diamond ring and cufflinks he had, he had bought from this Ricky on one afternoon not long ago. Ricky had claimed he was strapped for cash and was selling these items at a discount. He gave Arredondo a good deal. Since then, the buyer had read that the Night Stalker was known for robbing his victims as well as slaying them and wondered, shit, what if? Just maybe. The police nodded. They understood completely. Taking the goods that Arredondo offered, they in turn handed them over to the investigative team for possible identification. That evening, the ring and links were labeled as stolen property that once belonged to one of the killer's male victims. Never knowing when this Ricky might turn up at Meyer's doorstep, uh, plainclothesmen began surveillance on her home night and day. A rhythm of lucky breaks was in full tempo. While this was occurring in the Bay Area, eyewitnesses in the Mission Viejo neighborhood near L.A. had reported seeing an orange, older name or older make of Toyota prowling their streets immediately prior to the attack on Carnes and Gunther. On April 27th, the book Night Stalker tells us, the orange Toyota station wagon was found in a parking lot in the Rampart area of Los Angeles. Detective watched the car for almost 24 hours before deciding it had indeed been abandoned and the stalker was not going to return for it. But the discovery of the auto would prove fruitful. Dusting the car for fingerprints, city investigators delivered the prints to the Orange County Sheriff's Office, whose forensic laboratory was testing a brand new Department of Justice-created system for tracking prints in record time. The prints matched those of a small-time thief and mischievous from Texas named Richard Ramirez. Now, lauded the Los Angeles Times, the system picked Ramirez's fingerprints out of 380,000 other sets, only three minutes after the system was fed a partial print lifted from the Toyota. The need to capture the Night Stalker was so urgent that the installation of the new California ID computer system, which is still in progress, was interrupted so the system could be reprogrammed to search for the Night Stalker's prints. The police had a name. Now they needed to research the suspect to find out more about him, and most importantly, they needed to find him before he slayed again. Now, Ricardo Ramirez was born in the Barrio, Hispanic section of El Paso, Texas, on February 20, 1960. We covered his entire childhood, and even grade school teachers claimed he could have been a good pupil. He had all these nice things said about him, and then they start saying that he started getting into Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, as we covered. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Now he had but three interests in junior high and cared about little else. Martial arts, marijuana, and heavy metal. We already went into all that shit. He was seen preoccupied with Satanism and stories about black magic, which carried on into his adulthood. Now here we go. At 20 years old, his probation ended. All right, after going to jail for three years. All right, he's on probation for three years. We didn't cover that. He stole, you know, got busted for reckless driving a friend's car. That's all they had to go off him. 
So between the time that he departed his native Texas and the time he took up killing innocent people, Richard Ramirez encountered minor run-ins with the law. In 1984, he was taken into custody and photographed while suspected of driving a stolen car, a charge that came to nothing. He was released, obviously. Now, Ramirez is known to have gone by several aliases. Accounts uh, a retrospective article in the Los Angeles Times, including Richard Moreno, Noah Jimenez, Nicholas Adame, uh, Richard Munoz, and Richard Mona. But in all, aside from simple interactions, he did little more than waste away slowly in the drug and booze bars of Southern California, wearing black, always black, uh, salivating over Satan, and freaking out on the flimsy film veils of burning dragon weed. So that's essentially the story that they're getting from Richard Ramirez. This is what they looked up. So I was going to go into the whole thing, but I covered so much of his childhood, I didn't feel like fucking wasting my time with it. So that's about it for what they had up to this point. Now, this is how it all ends, okay? So we have the modus operandi that they're building. They have a name. They have the prints. They have the, they have the footprints. They have all this shit. So no matter how evil, no matter how hideous, all things can be destroyed. Caliban shrinks from his own reflection. Prometheus scolds from the fire he created. Warlocks recoil from the druid stone. Werewolves perish with the silver bullet. And vampires weather under sunlight. Richard Ramirez, closest to the latter, should have known better than to step out from under the blood moon into the broad daylight. He was a creature of the night, but the shadows would no longer hide him. On the bright morning of Saturday, August 31st, 1985, Ramirez stepped from a Greyhound bus that had just pulled into the Los Angeles Depot from Phoenix, Arizona. He had gone there immediately following the corns, or sorry, the Carnes killing to buy cocaine from a seller he knew there. Still somewhat depleted from its effects, he turned to L.A., the scene of his crimes, probably already scheming his next fray into depravity. He did not know that the police, in the meantime, had learned his identity, nor that his face and name appeared for the first time in print in that morning's newspapers across the nation. He strutted past the depot's newsstand, oblivious to his own black and white visage scowling into the world, and grabbed a rapid transit to the east side barrio. The man suspected of so many atrocities was first spotted clad in black jeans and a Jack Daniels t-shirt at about 8.30 a.m. Saturday when he entered a small liquor store at 819 South Town um, and picked up a newspaper that had his picture on the first page. The Los Angeles Times relates, According to the store clerk, Ramirez, who was waiting for the cashier to ring up his purchase of whiskey, panicked when he realized what he was looking at. He threw the paper down and hot-footed from the store. Citizens in the market had already recognized him and pursued him. They yelled out, Stop, killer, halt! Uh, yelling things like, El Matador! Um, weaving through the Spanish-speaking neighborhood that he knew so well, but which had suddenly turned so foreboding, he made his way uh, almost in a sprint from the corner after corner to the 800 block of Mott Street. It was the beginning of the Labor Day weekend, and residents were out this sunny morning. Streets and porches brimmed with Early, rise, or early risers with strollers and shoppers on their way to shopping and dog walkers being yanked by their pets to the nearest fire hydrant. All their heads turned in his direction. There seemed to be a neon sign above them, directing their attention to the gaunt, ugly, pock-marked face they had just seen over their cup of java at the breakfast table. And they cried again, The killer! The killer! It's him! The killing one! The killing machine! When he ran, several of them waved down a passing police car and pointed out the direction of the Night Stalker's fight or flight, rather, sorry. 
when other residents phoned in a few moments later, claiming to have seen the fugitive a few blocks away at Euclid and Garnett, seven squads were dispatched to the scene. Street after street, the squads fanned out, following residents' leads along a zigzag course. One, maybe even two or three people might be wrong, the police, you know, figured out, but not an entire neighborhood. The cops knew that they had their man, and he was turned in by his own people. It was Ramirez's turn to live a nightmare, finally, about him. The brownstone and slap board walls of the barrio were closing in, so tight that the lack of space squeezed his chest to take his breath away. Under the dirty Jack Daniels logo he wore on his chest, his heart hammered his bones, and it ached like the devil that had deserted him. No escape from the world now. No escape from this bad dream. He had manufactured this mania. After all, in the night and in the day, it came back to, at last, haunt the hell out of him. Pointing fingers and jeers and twisted faces and taunts and open palms blocked his every move. Detours led to other detours. The place he had for so long used to blend in and broken loose, overused and indignant. He had shamed his own people, and they were hurling him through a gamut. Police sirens screamed from everywhere, and Richard Mears began to sob. His world came tumbling down, bare, uh, blurred into tears and perspiration. His pause, he paused briefly at one woman's screen door. Please help me, please help me, he implored. She saw the mob of neighbors assembling below her stoop, pointing at the person standing at her stoop. You're him, she shrieked, and slammed the inner door shut in his face. Desperate and near exhaustion, night stalker Richard Ramirez made a wrong turn when he dashed onto Hubbard Street. Unknowingly, he had stumbled into a neighborhood of heroes, the Los Angeles Times continues. Four citizens grabbed and subdued the suspected murder after a 20-second foot race, one of them pounding at him with a steel rod, just beating the fucking shit out of him. The heroes who captured Ramirez were Manuel De, De La Torre, 32, and three of his neighbors across the street, Jose Burgoyne, 55, and his sons, Jaime, 21, and Julio, 17. Another hero was Faustino Pinon, uh, 56, next-door neighbor of the Bur uh, Burgoynes, who had fought off Ramirez when he tried to steal his daughter's car. By the time the first squad arrived, <laughs> screeching onto the scene, the Burgoyne boys had the Night Stalker pinned to the curb. What fight remained in him was subdued with both boys' fists and a steel whip. He was bleeding from the, from the whelps. Uh, the man who had killed, maimed, and raped without mercy whimpered now and trembled now like a scared puppy, dazed by the deten uh, detonation of events. Wasn't it only a few moments earlier he had stepped off the Greyhound, independent and carefree, cuffed and shoved into the backseat of the squad car of the Night Stalker, brushing filthy tears from his cheek, made a strange request of the arresting deputy. Shoot me now, man. Please shoot me. I don't deserve to live. For once, Los Angeles and Richard Ramirez were at one mind. So, the neighborhood caught him. They recognized him. They caught him. They beat the shit out of him. They got him arrested. They held him down for the police to show up. That right there, that's fucking true justice. So, we're getting into his court time now. So, here we go. Uh, the nation, in particular, the prosecuting district attorney's office expected senior, uh, senior night stalker's case to be open and shut adios and go to the death chamber quick after all the evidence was there and more details were zipping in as collected by the prosecution team uh their crackhead hunters unit i'm sure that means something different to us now then i'm pretty sure you know i'm there might have been a comma there crack head hunters unit sorry i said crackhead hunters unit which fuck it Anyway, uh, little did anyone expect that after the Night Stalker's dramatic arrest that his trial was not to commence for nearly two and a half fucking years later. 
Legal manipulations and maneuverings would play the largest part in postponing justice. Other factors would be interference from outside sources, such as Ramirez's El Paso family, from hard-headed personal antagonism rampant amongst defense lawyers, and from Ramirez's own behavior and inability to cope with the reality of the judicial system. The defense would chase uh, every loophole. Bias would be shouted, as well as prejudice, and the defense would parade them before a national grandstand, annoying press and public that knew better than to fall for the delays. Also, it was hard for them to find fucking anybody that hadn't heard of them. And now when you have a, you know, a, a, a grand jury, um, they can't know about the case. So they had to search far and fucking wide for people that didn't, hadn't heard about this. You know, how are you going to find 12 non-biased people? Um, which is how our judicial system is set up. You have a jury of one's peers, and they're supposed to come in non, non-biased, which, I mean, when you got all the evidence stacked, I'd fucking take them out and just beat them to death. But anyway, the case appeared to be off to a running start. Um, Los Angeles County District Attorney Ira Rayner appointed veteran Deputy District Attorney P. Phillip Halpin to prosecute the case with hours, within hours of Ramirez's arrest. Now, on Tuesday, September 4th, the suspect appeared in court to hear initial charges. Standing with head bowed, Night Stalker suspect Richard Ramirez was arraigned on a single murder count and seven other charges stemming from two late night attacks in early May in the San Gabriel Valley, reported the Los Angeles Times. He was charged with murder, burglary, robbery, rape, sodomy, and forced oral copulation in the May 14th shooting death of Harold Wu and an attack on Wu's wife. He could face the death penalty. Simultaneously, San Francisco authorities charged Ramirez with the deaths of Mr. and Mrs. Peter Pan. August 17th, an Orange County official slapped him with murder and rape charges on the attacks on William Carnes and Renata Gunther on August 25th. Of the other Los Angeles area crimes of which he was alleged to have committed, D.A. Rayner told Times reporters, understand that the suspect was arrested just over the weekend. There is a mountain of evidence that has to be you know, collected has to be analyzed, has to be investigated. There is scientific investigation that is still going on. Within the next couple of weeks, I expect it will all be pulled together and decisions will be made as which cases will be filled. Now, as Rayner predicted, during the following months, Ramirez garnered 14 allegations of murder, which were accompanied by numerous allegations of attempted murder, robbery, burglary, sexual assault of varying degrees. Investigators had collected physical evidence in the cases involving murder, assault and or rape on these victims jenny vincal del okazaki and maria hernandez sile and you vincent and maxine zazara harold Wu, ruth wilson uh malvia keller and blanche wolf uh patty higgins mary louise cannon Deidre palmer joyce lucille nelson linda fortuna mason and layla needing chitat asawaham christopher and virginia peterson ahmed zia Additional allegations were filed against Ramirez for crimes that he had not been previously suspected of, but which were recently traced to him, the robbery of an Eagle Rock resident, Thomas Sandova, the kidnapping and rape of an eight-year-old child in the same community, and the burglary of the uh, Monrovia home of Clara Hadsel. Again, the prosecution expected a a lead pipe cinch, but their strategy to move the process along on an even kill was constantly interrupted by professional and not so professional shenanigans. 
What occurred was what Lindiger calls a legal circus, a nightmarish marathon that would last four years and the state almost $2 million in trial and other legal costs involve a half dozen defense attorneys and almost 3,000 jury interviews. To begin, there was a serious series of pyrotechnical relationships between Ramirez's defense lawyers and between the lawyers and the Ramirez family. Municipal Judge Elvis Soper had designated public defender Alan Adeshek counsel of the defense, but this move was contrary to the Ramirez's uh, of El Paso who wanted their son and brother to be defended by another attorney, Juan Manuel Barraza. Adeshek claimed he had been appointed chief defense and refused to relinquish the position. After haggling caused delays, Barraza finally backed off, announcing he was not prepared to stay with a trial that he expected to last years. With that matter settled, Ramirez began balking that he did not like Adeshek and refused to accept him as his lawyer. It seems to have been a clash of personalities. Adeshek was a no-nonsense type who refused to put up with his client's mood swings a bad boy behavior in court. Um, at his arraignments, Ramirez actually threatened to the judge, fingered the prosecution, um, and proved to be unruly, unacceptable, socially harmful defendant, drawing pentagrams on the palms of his hands and flashing these satanic symbols into the faces of the media there to cover the proceedings. In an effort to keep things rolling and to grant the descendant all the liberties allowed a man on trial, especially a minority, Judge Soper in October hesitantly accepted Ramirez's request for termination of, of Adeshek and welcomed to court a new counselor hired by Rosa Flores, Ramirez's sister. This latest was a man named Joseph Gallego, a 56-year-old Californian with two decades of legal experience, but the court discovered with a very minor police record years earlier. By all indication, he was a talented man who sincerely personally believed in his client and very, import very importantly understood the Latino culture. If given a chance, he probably would have proven quite capable. If given a chance, Flores fired him. Lost time. Again. In the interim, the defendant still had not answered the court's charges on the alleged felonies, a process that should have occurred immediately after the avenue of charges was announced in early September. Months passed, and the prosecution was forced to play hold your breath until the process could resume. Flores's new choice of counsel to defend her brother was a team of Daniel and Arturo Hernandez, unrelated despite the matching surnames. Both lawyers had seen little experience in murder trials and certainly had not the grit uh, comparable to upholding the weighty responsibility requested of them by the Ramirez family. Judge Soper herself mediated the court's concern and openly announced her, uh, yeah, her reticence. She clearly pointed out that the dangers of procuring inexperienced lawyers into the Ramirez family, but they wouldn't budge. In late October, Soper hesitantly but officially appointed Hernandez and Hernandez as counselors for the defense. One of their first moves was to try to postpone the preliminary hearing from December 1986 to April of 1987, vying for six months to adequately prepare their initial defense. The court felt that their request was exaggerated, but not inflexible. Postponed the hearing to February 24th after the new year. The prosecution, who felt they had an airtight case and had been roaring to go for some time, grumbled, expressing their disappointment. However, they politely conceded. In the meantime, the press had noticed the shifting of lawyers, the postponements, and what is considered the weakness of the court to bend to the new defense counsels every time wasting, wasting, wasting. The year, 1986, had come and gone, and taxpayers were paying for the Night Stalker's bread and board. 
when Judge Candace Cooper, who would preside over the preliminary hearing, issued a gag order on the hearings, which barred the media from the courtroom, hell broke asunder and the journalism turned blue with curses. The syndicated press appealed the ruling with fever. A time neared, however, the responsibility of the preliminaries was shifted from Cooper's court to that of jurist James T. Nielsen, who, considering the factors, amended all previous decisions and decided to allow the reporters into the courtroom. The media applauded Nelson's recognition of their rights, while the Hernandezes, who claimed that their client would be hung by a pack of bloodthirsty newshounds, yelped, but to no avail. Finally, the preliminary hearing opened in February of 1987. The purpose of this hearing was to identify which of the many allegations presented against Ramirez should actually come to trial, or, to quote author Lindiger, those charges were sufficient evidence of crimes had been presented to establish a prima facie case. Prima facie case. Uh, however the fuck you pronounce that. Over the 30-plus witnesses who testified during the three-week hearing, they included Jack Vincow, who found his mother's corpse after her brutal slaying in June of 1984, Joseph Duenas, an eyewitness to the Cyleon U attack in March of 1985, Maria Hernandez, roommate of the murdered Del Okazaki, that same night, Ruth Wilson, who was raped on May 30th, Renata Gunther, rape victim on August 25th, and Esperanza Gonzalez, whose boyfriend had unwittingly purchased one of the murder weapons from Ramirez. Throughout the defense and prosecuting lawyers often became investigated, sorry, unveiled in vocal squabbles apart from the uh, formal proceedings. The defense accused the court of bias and the prosecution claimed outwardly that the defense's demeanor in court was anything but respectful to the bench. The defendant himself was totally void of, comport of uh, comportment. This dude acted a fucking nut in court. Uh, not quite as, you know, he was just being a nut to be a fucking nut, whereas Ted Bundy thought he could defend himself. It's just kind of crazy how these people get. Uh, but then again, they're fucking serial killers. So, Anyway, Judge Nelson repeatedly was forced to warn him to subdue his erratic behavior, his incessant displays of contempt towards opposing counsel and witnesses. Messers, Hernandez, the court noted, were not supportive of the court, for they often joked and jibed along with Ramirez at the counsel table. Ramirez laughed a lot and joked with his attorneys, even cackling loudly during crucial testimony, states Lindiger. Once he laughed loudly during a young widow's testimony had caused several spectators to cry as she tearfully described how her assailant had raped and beaten her while her slain husband lay nearby. Sometimes Ramirez sneered openly at the prosecution. Studying photographs of crime scenes, he smirked. When he came across a death scene photo, he specifically, he especially liked. Uh, the suspect seemed to enjoy staring down witnesses at the podium in an effort to fluster them for he realized the power of fear in his Rasputin dark eyes. At one point, the weary judge, who had had enough of mind games, warned him to stop. Stop now! Ramirez tested the warning and once again set his black pupils on the next witness to take the stand. The judge nodded to the bailiff, and the bailiff physically yanked the defendant's head into the other direction. Ramirez grunted and, leaping to his feet, attacked the bailiff. Within seconds, he was overcome by courtroom guards who dragged him from the chambers back to his holding cell. Hernandez and Hernandez cried unfair, but everyone else, including the judge, gleefully closed their ears. The press loved the confrontation. Of course they fucking did. Finally, a little justice was exhibited, which is also true, and they made the most of it. The preliminary session ended on May 7th. Ramirez 
would be tried on a total of 41 specific criminal charges, 14 of murder, 5 for attempted murder, 15 for burglary, 4 for rape, 3 for forced oral uh, copulation, and 4 for sodomy. Ramirez pleaded not guilty to all charges. Trial was set for September 2nd of 1987. But again, the defense sought postponement. It was pushed back to December 2nd. More delays were forthcoming. Suffering a workload and backup of cases by the time the original trial judge relinquished the case to conservative Superior Court Judge Michael Tennant. This move, though necessary, provoked more delays and when the Hernandezes suddenly sparked an argument out of the clear blue to have the trial removed from the Los Angeles area where they said their client would not get a fair hearing, another postponement loomed. Eventually, shot down, the, Han the, Hernandez, initiate the Hernandez initiated filings nevertheless wasted many months. The trial was rescheduled for February 1st, 1988, and the beat went on. Hollering that they had not been given full access to the LAPD files for scrutiny, Hernandez and Hernandez sought and won more time to browse the police records that they claimed had been shut to them. Trial was reset for July of 1988, when jury selection finally began. For the first time, the lawyers from both sides of the table agreed on something, that because of the media's attention to the ghastly nature of the crimes, it would not be easy to find impartial jurors. A pool of over 3,000 prospective jurors were dwindled to half that number. They were then carefully interviewed by both counsels, cut by cut, slice by slice, 12 of whom, both factions, approved, were at last chosen. Six of the jurors were Latino. It had been an enormous, monumental, historical example of the American right to fair trial at work. The trial of Richard Ramirez began on January 29, 1989. The Night Stalker's terror, almost a dim memory to the American public, except for those who lived it. They would always remember, and they were hungry for justice. Now, Judge Tennant's courtroom hummed with excitement the day the trial opened in his late January. Estimated length of the trial, claimed reporters, was four to six months. Television cameras allowed to shoot portions of the trial remained unobtrusively behind the reporters scratching their observations in stent notepads. On the public benches, lawmen who had taken part in the capture of Ramirez, including Detective Frank motherfucking Salerno, sat intermingled with the random spectators, lucky enough to have obtained a seat. Defendant Richard Ramirez sat calmly at the counsel's table. His lawyer had dressed him in a con conservative suit and had seen that his stringy hair was styled. Sunglasses covered his menacing gaze. A gavel announced the commencement of the proceedings, and as the bailiff called for quiet, only the whir of the ceiling fan could be heard. The prosecutor, Philip Halpin, spoke. He addressed the jury, reminding them that they were there to try a vicious monster who had no regard for human life or decency. A ghoul had, who had tortured, killed many, and had left many alive to face days of pain and deformity. He reminded them that this monster worshipped the devil and fed to him innocent people as sacrificial lambs, their own beds being the chosen bloody altars. There was no doubt, he said, that Ramirez was guilty. Four different small caliber handguns that belonged to him were traced down as far as Texas. Ballistic tests already proved they killed the victims. Jewelry belonging to several other victims was located in his sister's home in El Paso, where the woman unwittingly accepted them as gifts. Then, there were Ramirez's finger and shoe prints found at the crime scenes. And then, of course, there were witnesses, many of them, ready to come forward to identify Ramirez at their, as their rapist, their assailant, and the killer of their husbands and boyfriends. He concluded, we have alleged these murders are in the first degree. We're 
premeditated and occurred during burglaries or other crimes. We are asking for the death penalty. Defense lawyer Daniel Hernandez waived his opening remarks until the prosecution fully concluded its forum later in the trial. Halpin had made such a dent that it was obvious that at this point there wasn't much one could say in rebuttal. In fact, as the trial progressed, Hernandez's weak start became weaker, not only because the prosecution's evidence was so strong, but because his partner, Arturo, suspiciously proved to be a no-show. Going in it alone against a Goliath, Daniel Hernandez was overwhelmed and exhausted. A month into the trial, Hernandez announced he required medical leave. In view of all the costly delays that had already occurred, Judge Tinnan refused to grant a suspension, but commandeering, but commandeered help for the Hernandez. Um, he replaced the invisible Arturo with criminal lawyer Ray Clark, an attorney of merit. Clark virtually took over the case of the defense with a clarity. He was a well-meaning and clever lawyer who reshaped the defense's platforms by retrying the show that Ramirez, in many instances, was a victim of mistaken identity, but it was all too late for that and to no avail. Of the 165 eyewitnesses who addressed the court, most of them brought damaging testimony against the defendant. Witness after witness for the prosecution had sworn under oath, identifying Ramirez. They remembered his exact words, his cursing to the devil, and they were simply unable to forget those pair of dark eyes that, despite the masquerade of sunglasses, were Richard Ramirez's. The shades, for that matter, concealed absolutely nothing, especially the negatively kinetic thing that dwelt beneath them. As during his preliminary hearing, Ramirez, Ramirez remained his uncontrollable self, throughout the court, defying the judge's orders to keep quiet and muttering under his breath at witnesses and bursting into idiotic laughter during the uh, damaging testimony. At the trial, the killer played to the press, declares J. Robert Nash in his crime anthology, Blood Letters and Bad Men. He flashed the palm of his hand where he had drawn a livid sign of the pentagram on other occasions as he sat listening to the prosecution condemn him for his crimes. He placed two upturned fingers on either side of his temples to indicate horns and intoned evil, evil, evil. Not the way to befriend a jury. Closing arguments having ended in July, it was now the jury's turn to summon a verdict. Delays, a trademark of the Ramirez case, occurred even during jury deliberation. One juror was fired for sleeping and replaced with an alternative. Frighteningly, another was murdered by a jealous boyfriend. She, too, was replaced. But both these occurrences drew time. Months crawled while the nation awaited a verdict. On September 20th of 1989, Richard Ramirez was brought from his cell to hear what the jury members ultimately decided. Guilty on all fucking counts. Fuck you, fuck off. Uh, despite pleas from the defense, the jury recommended death. When Judge Tienan asked the prisoner if he had anything to say on his own behalf, Ramirez, in true Night Stalker fucking way, cursed the court, cursed the jurors, cursed the world. I need not look beyond this room to see all the liars, haters, the killers, the crooks, the paranoid cowards, truly trematodes of the earth. He rambled on. You maggots make me sick, one and all. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil. But the nation cared not what he had to say. All it cared was that he was not beyond the gas chamber. In the end, that's all that mattered most. But there was one more side to consider, that of the victims who lived and the victims' families. On November 11th of 1989, USA Today quoted Don Nelson, who had found the mutilated remains of his mother, Joyce, in July of 1985, asked what he thought of his mother's killer's death sentence. Nelson replied, It doesn't bring my mom back, but he can no longer threaten anybody. 
I still see what my mom looked like as a result of what he did, and that's something I'm going to have to deal with over the remainder of my life. Today, Richard Ramirez sits in San Quentin death row. That is not today. So this is what they jotted down. Here we go, 1995. Here we go. So today, Richard Ramirez sits in San Quentin's death row where he was deposit, uh, deposited more than a decade ago, blah, 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 blah. It's pretty much talking about how fucking long it takes for this shit to go through. Richard Ramirez actually died um, from cancer. So we got to see how long this court case fucking took. We got to see how actual community justice fucking handled shit. And now we get to see his death. He actually died uh, June 7th, 2013. Um from cancer so he got to still fucking live out his life which was too good for that piece of shit but that is Richard Ramirez probably the worst motherfucker we've covered to date um and then we're gonna get off of murderers like I said for a while we're gonna go into uh into cults next which that is not free of murder unfortunately that's that's part of it too there's a lot of rape a lot of forced the thing about cults that I'm interested in is actually the um community thought um, how they're able to control so many people at one time and get everybody on the same page. I mean, not unlike religion. And I know I shouldn't compare the two, but I'm saying there's a lot of similarities. You get that pack mentality. And the other thing about it is that with cults, a lot of these people who give up everything to join these things um, go so long believing in one thing and then to just back away from it. Like we'll say like, uh, what's that big popular one with uh, L. Ron Hubbard? Scientology. Uh, we've seen a lot of, of, of uh, detractors from, from Scientology come out and say that it's, it's just, it becomes a lifestyle. And to stop believing in it and to start realizing that everything, I mean, you're, you're admitting to yourself that you were just lying to yourself the other time, the entire time. It's, it's really hard to come back from that psychologically. And that's why there's so many things that, that people do, um, almost like bystander syndrome, where you think somebody else will take care of it or you just get roped into something. It happens. Um, but anyway, so that's Richard Ramirez. That's the uh, R&R for, for the final of the year. Um, it was a lot. It was a lot of reading, and I stumbled on a few things. I'm a good reader, I swear to God. But I fucking... <laughs> it was a lot. Um and I hope you guys enjoyed it. It was a little bit different approach to a case. Normally, I'll take a lot of information from other things, and then I'll put my own perspective on it. I'll twist it around on other sources. But I, I actually really liked the way that this story was depicted. Um, and that's it, man. So thank you guys so much. It's been an awesome year. The downloads have increased. I mean, fucking more and more every month. Um, more and more people around the world are listening. So thank you guys so much. That's awesome. Uh, I did not get the t-shirts in time for this episode. I am so sorry. But after the first of the year, they will be available. It's going to be on Teespring. It'll be uh, teespring.com forward slash profiling pain store or something like that. I can't remember the exact thing. It'll be in the next episode show notes. And uh, that's it. Just let me know what you guys like. And have a good one. Thank you.